Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about anachronisms, words that are out of place in time, and how you can tell. And we'll talk about the two different spellings of okay and why I prefer one over the other. To get started, this piece about anachronisms is by Nev March, the author of Murder in Old Bombay. So when I say me or I, that's her. Historical novels attempt to take readers into a different time, and sometimes a different place, too. For example, my historical mystery, Murder in Old Bombay, transports readers to 19th century Bombay, the center of colonial India during the British Raj. To be effective, a historical narrative has to weave the facts and sounds of the time and place into the story, so readers feel that this story could not have occurred in any other time. Anachronisms, the use of words, objects, or phrases in a period where they didn't exist, are the bane of the historical fiction writer's life. So why does this matter? Well, a reader cracks open a new book with a sense of anticipation, expectations fed by the cover art and the book blurb, suspending disbelief as they begin. As they turn pages, every detail has to align or the bubble bursts, the curtain falls, and the illusion is gone. Imagine you're reading about ancient Rome, and then one of the characters says, no deal, In that microsecond, the scene is shot, that fragile tapestry is torn down, and suspended disbelief comes crashing down with all the weight of disappointment. The author has broken that promise, announced first in the genre and then made explicit in the blurb, leaving an unhappy customer to toss the book aside, return it to the library, or angrily report that terrible term, DNF, did not finish. When the illusion holds, the story unfolds. The reader dives in, turning page after page, enjoying the place and time, experiencing it firsthand. When readers are immersed, they feel the characters' difficulties and troubles, their quandaries, anticipate their plans, and root for them. They weep at their failures as events trip up the protagonist until the final unfolding, where both reader and character are surprised. But none of this will work if the details don't align, and anachronisms are anathema to the dream. In a recent work in progress, I used the term, let's pump him for information. 
Now, my story is set in 1893. Did people speak like this? Which people? Where? Here's how I look it up. My protagonist, Diana Framji, is a gutsy immigrant, educated in England, traveling around Chicago with a local sleuth. So I'm confident that at least in terms of location, I'm fairly safe. But the time, was that term in use at the time? To check, I visited Edom online and typed the term pump him into the search. Browsing the results, the different uses of the word pump, and settling on pump the verb, I read circa 1500 from pump the noun. Metaphoric extension in pump someone for information is from the 1630s. Excellent! Pump him for information has been used since the 1630s, so I'm safe to use it in common dialogue in 1893. However, it's actually unlikely that the rather proper Lady Diana will say that, so I'll have the local operative use it instead. Ah, and there's another one, operative. Dictionary.com tells me the origin of the word operative for a detective is from 1590 to 1600. Phew. Of course, one must watch out for dialogue, you say, but what about narration? Well, alas, the same rule holds. The narrator has to maintain the tone and knowledge available to the point-of-view character, that is, whichever character is narrating the scene. This is obvious in first-person novels, but less so in books written in third-person. When the point-of-view switches from one scene to another or one character to another, it has to hold good in every scene. Unless your character is a time traveler, they can't know how electricity worked before 1880. And even then, in those early years, such knowledge would mean they're a scientist, inventor, or engineer in the field. Particularly troublesome are words that were formed during world events. For example, shell shock comes from World War I and would be called different terms in later years. It was called combat stress reaction and battle fatigue in World War II. And PTSD is a very recent term. Carpet bomb, code talker, and sad sack come from World War II army slang. And Edam Online says the origin of recon was about 1918 when used for reconnaissance, the noun, but as late as 1966 for reconnoiter, the verb. And beware of using beachhead, blackout, genocide, and radar in books set before 1940. That said, it's astonishing how many words we might think of as modern were used centuries ago. Mobilize and refugee come from the 1600s, while scapegoat comes from the 1500s. The book English Through the Ages by William Broha is a treasure trove of such modern phrases in use well before the 19th century. Watch a play by Shakespeare, you can find many on YouTube, and you'll notice some curiously modern words. Scrolling through Coriolanus offers words like inventory, belly, storehouse, shop, audit, vein, microcosm, and got off for got away. The point is, a writer needs to check. Since all this checking slows me down while writing my first draft, I simply mark them in a bold font and continue, so I can return to them once my draft is done. Where words have changed meaning over time, it's best to use the word with the current meaning in mind, or risk being drawn into irate arguments with your dearest friends. 
Anyway, the author's job is less to educate readers on the origin of words than to entertain and give them insight. And no one likes a know-it-all. So authenticity matters to the illusion, to the story. But checking whether something existed or whether a word was or wasn't used also has added advantages. You may find in that very search ideas for the twists and turns of your story that generate added veracity, suspense, and believable obstacles for your protagonist. For example, I researched Victoria Cross recipients to figure out whether an Indian would be awarded one in the 1890s. The answer is no. Only white British officers were given a Victoria Cross. Indian natives were awarded the Order of Merit. And my research led me to Thomas Cavanaugh, who disguised himself to rescue his comrades during the 1857 siege of Lucknow. This sparked the idea for my protagonist, Captain Jim's adventure, traveling in disguise to rescue a band of Gurkha soldiers abandoned in enemy terrain. And even that action wasn't imaginary. It's based on the heroic Battle of Saragari, modified appropriately to fit my story. To sum up, the writer's task is building a believable scene, a story that immerses and surprises and leaves the reader satisfied. The rest are details, but the skyscraper of the story rests on your foundation of believable details. That segment was by Nev March. She's the winner of the Minotaur Books Mystery Writers of America First Crime Novel Award. She teaches creative writing at Rutgers Osher Institute and is an active member of the Mystery Writers of America. Murder in Old Bombay is her debut novel. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Remember the frustration of trying to memorize vocabulary and grammar rules only to find you couldn't actually use the language in real life? Well, there's a better way to learn. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program with millions of users learning 25 different languages, and you can get it on your desktop or as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone immerses you in many ways with its intuitive process. It's really different. You pick up the language naturally first with words, then the phrases, and then with sentences. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar. 
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. People often assume that it's tough to be my copy editor, but in truth, I'm actually pretty easygoing. I almost always accept my copy editor's changes, except when they try to change OK to OKAY. Then I become a raving maniac. My usual wishy-washy countenance turns to granite. One of my favorite stories is the origin of OK, and to me, the two-letter spelling is the purer form. Let me tell you the story. OK was born in America in the 1830s. So as an aside, you wouldn't want to use it in a novel set before the 1830s. That would be an anachronism. Much like the text messaging abbreviations of today, OK was an abbreviation for a funny misspelling of all correct, O-L-L-K-O-R-R-E-K-T. Journalists of the time seemed to have loads of fun making up these off-kilter, insidery abbreviations. Boston journalists are credited with OK, and according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the OKAY spelling didn't appear until 1895 in an Australian publication based in Sydney called The Bulletin. So again, if you're writing a novel, you shouldn't use the OKAY spelling before at least 1895. And in case you want even more spelling options, in 1919, H.L. Mencken wrote about Woodrow Wilson using the spelling O-K-E-H. But that one didn't stick. Thank goodness. Journalists in the 1830s came up with other odd abbreviations with similar origins, too. They had O-W for all right, O-L-L-W-R-I-G-H-T, a misspelling of all right, and N-S for nuff said. But OK stuck while the others fell into obscurity because President Martin Van Buren, whose nickname was Old Kinderhook because he was born in Kinderhook, New York, abbreviated Old Kinderhook into OK and adopted the campaign slogan, Vote for OK. He called his campaign supporters the OK Club, and all that campaign publicity established OK in the American lexicon. It stuck. Today, the two spellings peacefully coexist. The Associated Press emphatically recommends the two-letter spelling, and the Chicago Manual of Style says both are fine, but the OKAY spelling looks more like a word. My publisher's style is OKAY, but to honor the word's origins, I insist on the OK two-letter spelling, and so far they've been kind enough to indulge me. Because the OKAY spelling seems to be preferred by book publishers, though, that's the dominant form in fiction, which you can see in a Google Ngram search that's just limited to fiction. But when the search is more broad, covering all English in Google Books, OK, the two-letter version, overtook OKAY in 1990 and continues to be used more often today. You could speculate that OK's rise was because text messaging caused people to favor the shorter spelling, which then eventually made its way into books. But text messaging didn't really take off until about the year 2000. So the rise of the two-word spelling doesn't quite match up with text messaging. Anyway, you can usually use whichever spelling you prefer. They're both considered correct. If you have to follow AP style, you'll use the two-letter spelling, okay. But if not, you have some leeway, and you can use whichever one you like. 
I like the two-letter version, okay, because it's more true to the origin and honors those wacky 19th century journalists. And for those of you who might be wondering, the Associated Press spells okay without periods, but some publications do use them. The New Yorker, for example, writes it as two letters with a period after each. And finally, some people say that OK is the most widely recognized English word in the world. And if you want to learn every detail of the story, the English and journalism professor Alan Metcalf has written an entire 240-page book about it called OK, The Improbable Story of America's Greatest Word. And just for the record, he used the two-letter spelling. Finally, I have a familect story from DJ. Hey, Mignon, this is DJ calling from Atlanta, and I have a family story related to the pandemic. It's actually two words. First is maskneesia, spelled M-A-S-K-N-E-S-I-A. It's when I interact with someone in the real world, and then 15 minutes later, I start to wonder if they had a mask on or not, and just cannot remember. This stresses me out, which leads to the next family act. Nomophobia, spelled just like it sounds. No, mask. Phobia. It's the fear of interacting with someone who's not wearing a mask. You can experience it live or after the fact. In other words, if you have both nomophobia and masknesia, then you're really going to be stressed because you can't for the life of you remember whether the person had a mask on and you're afraid you might have contracted COVID. Thanks for letting me share. Love your podcast. See ya. Thanks, DJ. The pandemic has spawned so many new words as all the word of the year choices showed a couple of months ago. You actually inspired me to come up with a name for something my husband and I do while we're out for walks. When we encounter other people, we'll often quickly turn down a side street to avoid them. Or if we can't do that, we'll at least cross the street to get as far away as we can. And after I heard your call, I said, we need to come up with a name for that. So we now call it Coronis Divertus, and it happens every time we take a walk. Thanks for the inspiration, and thanks for sharing your story. If you want to call with your family word story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook as Grammar Girl. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sems, and that's all. Thanks for listening. Is this house a good price compared to others in the area? Are prices going up or down? If I don't make an offer right this very moment, will I miss my chance? These are just some of the questions a home buyer might ask. And these are the sorts of questions an agent who is a Realtor can help answer. Because Realtors have the expertise, data, and access to specialty training to help you navigate the process of buying a home. They provide support, guidance, and have your back every step of the way. That's what Realtors do. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. From muddy jungle paths to snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder is ready to take you to some of the most phenomenal destinations on Earth. In a Pathfinder, it's more than just the arrival. The real excitement comes from the ride to get there. 
With seven drive modes, Pathfinder's available intelligent four-wheel drive is built for some of the most epic journeys. So chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures in the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. Intelligent four-wheel drive cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions.